The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. If you've got a Bible, then we're in Genesis chapter 37. That's where we're going to be this morning when we get started. Um, as we're, we're walking through the book of Genesis, and so we get to this new kind of shift, this new scene, and so we get introduced to Joseph and so this is the narrative. And so really from, from now until um, chapter 50, then there's a big section here that's really kind of just the Joseph narratives. And so we see what God's doing in and through Joseph's life um, to continue what he began, that he's going to redeem and restore a people and a planet for his glory, right? And so we're going to continue to walk through that. I... Uh, I was out a little late last night when college kids come back in town on break, then they call and they're like, hey, you want to go watch a movie? I'm like, sure. What time? 9.15. <laughs> like, guys, it's a two-hour movie. And we lose an hour of sleep. But always young once, uh, Decided to go, and uh, we had quite the experience. We, we sat in the front row. I don't know if any of y'all have ever watched a movie from the front row. You kind of watch like this. I mean, everyone's huge. They're massive, but we had a lot of fun. It, it's always good to have the college students back. I see several of them around. It's always good to have y'all back and, and have the family back, and so welcome. We're glad you're here. It's always fun to catch up and see what the Lord's doing in your life. There's actually, in our text here, it's going to talk about a a 17-year-old Joseph, and so it's fun to have walked the 17-year-old Joseph with some of you guys that, uh, and to see you grow out of it, right? And so it's always good. If you've got your Bible to Genesis chapter 37, then let's begin. We're going to read the first two verses here, and then uh, we'll pray. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock of his brothers, and he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Well, let's pray and just ask that God would begin to speak through his word. Well, Lord, we do just come to you needy, Lord, needy and desperate that you would, you would speak to us, Lord, needy and desperate that you would open our eyes to see things the way that that we should see them needy and desperate, that you would give us ears to hear from you, Lord, needy and desperate, that you would change our hearts, Lord, needy and desperate, when we don't have it in us, Lord, that you would sustain us. God, and so we ask this morning, Lord, that you would do what only you can, Lord, that you would awaken hearts, that you would sustain us, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, Lord, that you would accomplish your purpose through us, Lord, that you would be glorified in us. We pray that you would do it this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis 37, verse 1, starts with Jacob. And so we've been hearing about Jacob, and the narrative of Genesis has been moving us along. And there's a phrase that happens there at the very beginning of verse 2 that says, These are the generations of Jacob. And so this phrase, these are the generations, happens 11 times. And so this is the last one in Genesis that... And what this phrase does is it moves us forward. It moves us forward in this, this text, in this narrative to say from Adam and Eve, then there was this multiplication that was happening. They were filling the earth. And, but God was redeeming and restoring, and he had given this promise 
to the people that through that someone was going to come, a redeemer was going to come. And we see that, that, okay, so through Adam and Eve, there's going to be one who's going to come that's going to crush the head of Satan, right? And so we move forward and we move in these promises forward and we get to Abraham and we see his generations. And then we move forward and we get Jake, Jacob and his generations. And so we're seeing in this that God is moving his plan forward through generations of people. That God is at work all the time. That he's accomplishing his purpose. And he's accomplishing his will. And he's doing it generation by generation by generation. And so from the very beginning we see these are the generations of Jacob. And then we get quickly introduced to Joseph. And it says that Joseph being 17 years old. Now, youth pastor, I know 17, right? Some of y'all are like, yeah, we know 17 too. We're ready for 18, 19, 20, right? Some of y'all are just ready for the 17, Joseph, 17 boy, full of hormones pumping through his body, full of just like looking in the mirror, full of all sorts of things, right? He's 17, and we see in verse 2 that, that Joseph is 17 years old, and he's pasturing the flock with his brothers, and he brings back a report to his dad that is not good about his brothers. He brings back this report about his brothers. The very first thing that we learn about Joseph is he's 17 and he tattles to dad about what his brothers have done, right? Now, I had a brother. I was also the youngest. And I knew I could hear and see a lot of things that my brother and sister did. And I was quite frequently known to go and tell mom and dad, right? We get this. Like, Mom, Dad, guess what they were doing? And so Joseph is tattling on his brother, and he brings this bad report. Now, we know from experience, especially those of us that had older siblings, that when you bring a bad report, then normally you're going to get your licks at some other time, right? When Mom and Dad aren't watching. And that brothers are going to retaliate. And so we see here that Joseph brings the bad report. Verse 3, now Israel, which is Jacob's name after he wrestled with God, he walks with a limp and he got a new name. And so his name is Israel. And so he, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. Now it's important that we see there that Jacob, Israel, loves Joseph more. He's got favoritism, right? He loves Joseph because he's the son of his old age. And you may think like, oh, well, then he must be the youngest. He's not even the youngest. Benjamin's the youngest. But Israel loves, loves, loves Joseph. Now, it should be ironic for some of us because Israel knew what it was like to not be the favorite. Right? He knew what it was like to have dad love his brother more than he loved him. And so here he's doing the exact same thing that his dad had done, which he hated. He didn't like. But yet he loves Joseph more. And it, we see also that he loves Joseph more. And because of that affection, it's not just this like, hey, you guys know that dad loves me more, right? And then there's the debate. He's like, no, look, I got the coat. It proves it. Where's your coat? Like, you know, this is 17-year-old Joseph. He's like... Did y'all get a coat from dad? Oh, no. Oh, 
must love me more. Like you just know this is going on, right? It's like Christmas time and he's like, oh, look what I got. Oh, you got socks, right? This is the whole thing. He's like, I got a coat. The brothers don't get a coat. It's a, it's a physical evidence of his father's affection for him. And it's, it stands out to us. We know it as the coat of many colors. Here it says it was a robe of many colors. It was a garment that was worn that, that was pricely, and it showed Israel's affection for Joseph, set apart from all the others. And so we see the many colors. Verse 4, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. There was a reaction within them in which they hated Joseph. And we know that they couldn't speak peacefully to him. And we know from the scripture that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and they can't even speak peacefully to him. They hated him. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Are you seeing a theme? Verse 6, he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Like, can you just imagine Joseph telling this? Like, 17 years old. He's like, hey, uh... Good night's sleep. Did y'all have any dreams? No? I did. You want to hear it? Um, basically, my stack of grain, it stood up really tall, kind of like me. And uh, yours all came around and bowed down to me. And you see the brother's reaction. They're like, his brothers, they say this to him. Are you indeed to reign over us? They're like, Joseph, what are you, what are you trying to say, bro? Are you going to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? They're like, what are you trying to say? And here we see it again. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. We're just stacking it on, right? They don't like him because he's the favorite. They don't like him because of the coat. They don't like him because he tattles on them. They don't like him because he tells them this dream. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. He's like, Hey guys, had another dream last night. You want to hear it? They're probably like, Go away, Joseph. No one likes you, right? Here's his other dream. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, when we just read this text, we're like, okay, so normal family, right? It's dysfunctional, right? We're like, all right, I can relate. Normal family here. Brothers got some strife with each other. Dad's showing some favoritism and... Joseph's having these dreams. What are these dreams, though? And so we should cue into these dreams that throughout Genesis, then dreams have been revelation from God. And so Genesis uses these dreams that God speaks to his people through dreams. He reveals his will to them. 
And so here we see that twice God has revealed his will to Joseph. Now, it's important that this happened twice. You see there in verse 9, this says, and he dreamed another dream. If you flip over to chapter 41 of Genesis, real fast, verse 32, then, then it helps us understand why it's important that there were two dreams. And so 41, verse 32 says this, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. That he hasn't misunderstood this. That because there were two of them, it's guaranteed. Take it to the bank. Right? And so Joseph has revelation from God that's guaranteed that he is going to rule over his brothers. That he is going to rule over his family. That they will bow down to him. Now, if I got a revelation like that, 17 years old, I got a little pep in my step, right? You're like, what could go wrong? I'm going to rule over you. Y'all are going to serve me. Yes, I'm the youngest, but that don't matter because God said it. And so here, Joseph, 17, he's got these dreams and he's got this revelation from God. He's got this promise from God. And so as readers of the Bible, we go on to see, okay, so how is this going to happen? Right? Like, all right, it's probably because Joseph has been blessed by his dad. So his dad's going to continue to bless him. But look at verse 12. Sometimes, as we're good Bible readers and we read it a lot, then, then we lose the, the intensity or the anticipation or the suspicion of where we go, well, what's next? What's next? And so we see verse 12, it says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock at Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Like, can you imagine this question? He's like, Joseph, you're my favorite, but you still got to work, son. Like, what are you doing here? Like, still got to do some work. And so he says, come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? And he said, I'm seeking my brothers. And he said, tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, what the narrative is doing here, and, and there's a bookend of this kind of parallel passage towards the end of Joseph's narrative that's a really cool when you look at the whole picture, then you get to see there's, there's something going on here with this little passage that you don't get the full picture until you see the back end of it. So spoiler alert that, that the same thing happens and Joseph is, is seeking his brothers and then his brothers are seeking. And so there's this, there's this exchange that goes on of his brother, Joseph seeking his brothers, but watch what's going to happen. Verse 18, and they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. We go, whoa, that just took whole family quarrels to a whole new level, right? You're like, all right, maybe we're not that bad, right? So Joseph's brothers, they see him, and the reason that they know it's him is he's got this coat on. And they see him from a far distance, and they're like, can't you just imagine it? Like, they see him walking with that coat, and they're like, ugh, everything they despise about him. And they're like, let's get rid of him. 
Let's just kill him. We'll never have to hear from him again. Let's just be done with it. Like, the hatred to see him at a far distance and go, ah, let's just get rid of him. And so they conspire to kill him, verse 19. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Now catch that. They're like, we'll see what becomes of these dreams that he dreams. He'll be dead. How are we going to bow down to him then? He'll be dead. God's revelation, God's promises, opposition. Right? Isn't this the way that it works? That, that there's a revelation from God, that there's promises from God, that God is going to accomplish his will, and there's opposition. Opposition not just to Joseph, but opposition to God's plans and God's purposes. And so they say, let's see what becomes of these dreams. Here's a neat little aside in verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of the hands, saying, let us not take his life. Now, Reuben, at this point in time, is on dad's bad, 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 bad list, right? Reuben has done some, some incredibly dumb things and has got on dad's really bad list because of the dumb things that he's done. And so we know that he's done these dumb things. And Reuben is the firstborn. He should be blessed of God. And yet he's on dad's like, I'd be okay if I didn't see you anymore, list probably. And so Reuben says, hey, don't kill him. And he says to the brother, shed no blood, cast him into the pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay your hand on him. And we get this aside, that he might rescue him out of the hand and restore him to his father. I think what Reuben's doing here is he's like, I could use Joseph to get back in dad's good graces. Like, I know that Joseph is dad's favorite. Dad's really upset at me. So if I rescue Joseph and play this whole game of like, dad, they were going to kill him, but I saved him. See, get back in dad's good graces. Be back on the, the good list, right? Get back into the blessings. And so Reuben says, don't kill him. Reuben is part of sparing Joseph's life right here. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe and the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty and there was no water in it. So they've thrown him down in this pit. And let me just pause right here. Joseph has a promise from God. Guaranteed it's going to happen. Your brothers and your family are going to bow down to you and serve you. And now he's in the bottom of a pit after being beat up, lost his coat, and he's looking up. And he's like, this is not what I expected. Have you ever been in that place where your expectations didn't meet reality? That the circumstances you were in were not what you had expected them to be? where you thought you were walking faithfully with God or you thought you were doing what God had said for you to do and then you find yourself in a place going, what? Joseph, I think, probably was going, wow, this did not work out how I thought. Just came to get a report, report back to dad how, this, how the flocks were going and now I'm down in the bottom of a pit, right? Verse 25, then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan, the Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh. 
and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah, now it's important that you see Judah right there. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Now, Judah, I think, is, is the total pragmatic one. He's like, listen, we don't get anything out of this if we just kill him. Let's sell him, right? Then we at least get something, right? And so Judah's like, hey, we, I mean, if we just kill him, we get nothing. So sell him. And his brothers listened to him, and the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, and they lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. They're like, hey, just standard rate, right? So 20 shekels, they're like, standard rate, no inflation here. We'll give him to you at cost. Like, I mean, this is crazy. They're selling his brothers. Like, some of y'all over here, you're like, see, Mom, I've never done that before. Right? You're like, who sells their brother? Like, y'all are more like the others of like, I've thought about killing him before, but never selling him. Maybe it's a good idea. Don't sell your siblings. Don't do it. Right? They sell him. But look, it says, and they took Joseph to Egypt, and we see that Joseph's life has been spared. They take him to Egypt. The narrative goes on, and it says Reuben comes back, and Reuben's distraught because he's like, what am I going to do now? That was my one chance. And so Reuben's distraught because... Joseph is gone. They end up taking Joseph's coat. They tear it to pieces. They dip it in some blood. They take it back to dad. And it's interesting, verse 34, it switches back and it says, then Jacob tore his garments. It's not Israel like he's been mentioned, but it's Jacob. And so, so then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and he mourned for his son many days. And his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son's mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now, there's some conspiring going on here. Like, they're trying to comfort their dad. They're like, Dad, it's okay. He's gone. He's in a better place. Right? He's like, No. Like, he's mourning. They're conspiring. The siblings are conspiring to continue this lie. And... Meanwhile, it says, verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So we end verse chapter 37, and if you're just reading it, then you end 37 and you go, what? Like, Joseph had this promise, guaranteed to happen, and now he's a slave. And we go back to... This place of, can we relate? When our expectations are met by opposing circumstances, what do we do? What do you do when your expectations are met by opposing circumstances? Well, if you're like me, which I think a lot of you are, then you look for someone to blame, right? You look for someone to blame. Whose fault is this? When something goes wrong, then I look for someone to blame. And so let's just kind of walk through Genesis 37 and let's think through. If Joseph is in this place, he's either down in the bottom of the pit or he's shackled hands and feet and he's walking and he's like, whose fault is this? Who am I going to blame for this? God made a promise to me and it hasn't come true and I'm in chains Well, number one, I think Joseph 
could have looked to his dad and blamed his dad. Israel showed favoritism. Clearly says that. Says he loved him more than the other sons. This is dad's fault, right? If dad wouldn't have shown favoritism, then the brothers wouldn't have been jealous. This is dad's fault. If dad hadn't given me that coat, sure, he could have been, I could have been his favorite. He could have given me other stuff. If he hadn't given me the coat, then I wouldn't be in this place. This is dad's fault. Maybe you can relate. Maybe your parents didn't set you out on a great course. Maybe they hurt you. Maybe their own sin and their own selfishness was a huge detriment to you. And you're looking at where you're at in life and the things you faced in life, and you're like, this is their fault. This is mom and dad's fault. My life and the circumstances that have come into it is their fault. Or maybe you're like the second one, and Joseph could have looked at his brothers and said, it's their fault. It's not dad's fault necessarily. It's brother's fault. That The brothers are the ones that caused all this. If they just wouldn't have been jealous, can't they just be happy for me? Can't they just celebrate with me? Right? They got jealous over his dreams. They got jealous over his dad's affection. They got jealous over his coat. They got jealous. They got mad about him tattling. Like, why can't they just let things go? We've all made mistakes. This is this is the brother's fault. Maybe you've been somewhere in life and maybe you didn't do anything and someone's evil intentions were aimed at you. Maybe you were fired for something. Maybe you were looked over, passed over for a job. Maybe you didn't get a raise. Maybe whatever it is that people in your life, you look around and, and you're looking at the people and you're like, it's their fault. The reason these circumstances have happened, the reason I'm in this place is them. But there's a third one, and I think it's the one that a lot of us go to. It's my favorite blame. It's myself. It's my fault. If I hadn't tattled on my brothers, Joseph might have thought, or if I didn't tell my family the dream, or if I didn't wear that robe... Or if I wouldn't have been so prideful, if I would have just been a little nicer in the way I said it, if I wouldn't have done this, if I would have just done that, if I, if I, if I, it's my fault. I could have changed the circumstances. This is my fault. I'm to blame. The guilt, the shame, the condemnation. It's my fault. Maybe there's a, you can relate in that. Children that aren't walking with the Lord, you blame yourself. A marriage that failed, you blame yourself. Singleness, you blame yourself. We can blame ourselves for a lot. Or maybe it's this last one, which a lot of us wouldn't always go there, at least voice it, but we think it. This is God's fault. God's the one that gave me the dreams. This is his fault. The circumstances here are God's fault. He's in control. This is his fault. My child getting sick, this is his fault. 
This is God's fault. You see, but Joseph didn't end up in the blame game. And that's what's unique about this text as we read it that's so incredible because I end up in the blame game so often. But Joseph didn't end up there, and we don't have to. That our story does not have to end there. When we see God's providence, along with God's promises, we don't have to end up in the blame game. Now let me say that again. When we see God's promises and providence in light of each other, then we don't have to end up in the blame game. And so let's see what that looks like. But before we go there, I just want to take this little aside that God's providence and God's promises don't excuse man's responsibility. Can I just say that again? That people sin. Jacob sinned. His brothers sinned. Guess what? Joseph sinned at some point. I don't know if it was particularly in this text that caused some of this. It may have been pride. It may have been arrogance. But Joseph sinned. God never sins. But God's providence doesn't excuse man's responsibility. People are still responsible. We see that in these texts, just real quick as an aside, that we see that man is still responsible. Look at Genesis chapter 45, real quick. Genesis chapter 45, in verses 5, Verse 5, it says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Like, catch that. This is Joseph talking to his brothers, and he's like, You sold me here. Like, you're responsible in a sense. Like, you did this act. Again, we see in in Acts 3.15 and in Acts 5.30, then Peter, when he's talking about this, then he puts responsibility of Christ's death on the wicked, evil people. He said, You evil people did this. You crucified Christ. It doesn't excuse responsibility. They are responsible. But God's providence does something with man's evil intentions. Is that God's providence redeems their evil. It redeems their evil and it brings about good and glory. You sold me. But in Genesis, or in 45, 5 through 7, you sold me. But God sent me before you to preserve life. You see how they go together? You're responsible. You sold me, but God redeemed it for good. You wicked people crucified Christ, but God used it to save sinners and to raise him up. There's responsibility that must be owned. But the story doesn't end there. Because God is redeeming and restoring a people and a planet. And he's redeeming the evil intentions of men and the evil acts of men for good. Further, we see that Joseph moved to this place in chapter 50, verse 20. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That God is redeeming out of evil for your good. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that the circumstances, however evil and wicked, whether natural disaster or caused by humans, do you believe that God is working those for your good? 
If we don't believe that, then we've missed something. Either God doesn't love me and work all things for my good, or God's not able. And so where do we go? Well, we go to the cross. When you, when you have trouble believing this promise that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, when you have trouble believing that promise, where do you go? You go to the cross because the cross shows us in a very tangible way that Christ was willing to suffer and die for you simply because he loves you. That he spared no cost. That he didn't hold back anything. He didn't go 99 and leave the rest for you. He went all the way for you. That he loves you. And he's, he's willing, he's able to work for your good. That he loves you. But the cross, he didn't stay dead. He rose again, which shows that he's able. Right? He's not still dead. He's the resurrected one who can work on your behalf. He's the one who can accomplish it. When you go, God, I don't know how you'll bring anything good out of this. He goes, oh, I have a plan. Oh, I have a plan for your good and for my glory. You go, Joseph, I'm in a pit. I'm sold in slavery. How in the world are you going to accomplish what you promised, God? He goes, trust me. I'm working for your good and for my glory. I'm willing and I'm able that God is working on our behalf no matter the circumstances, no matter the evil, no matter if you're at the bottom of the rope and you're hanging on to the knot and you're like, I got nothing left. Hold on. Just like we were encouraged, hold on. He's working for your good. That he will redeem and restore. It doesn't take away the pain of some of these hurts. There's deep hurts, but it gives you hope in the midst of it. It doesn't eliminate the pain of your life, but it gives you hope that it wasn't all vain, it wasn't all pointless, that God is going to use it. You see, he used it in Joseph's life to save many. He's going to use some of the things that have happened in your life to encourage and save others. Do you believe it? Do you believe that you're like, no, 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 you don't know what's happened to me, you don't know the things I've done. Guess what? When Jesus went to the cross, he knew it all. And he went there for you. He says, I want to redeem it. And I want to use you in order that you might save others, in order that you might show my glory. He wants to use you. It's like this. I think the best kind of just simple illustration is, is that when we view life with God's providence and God's promises, it's like putting on a pair of gospel glasses, right? We get this. It's like putting on a pair of gospel glasses. It doesn't, it doesn't change the things, but there's a different lens in which we view everything through. It doesn't necessarily change the circumstances that are in your life, but it will change the way you view those circumstances. That when we view with God's promises and God's providence that he's willing and able to work on my behalf for me, for my good, for his glory, then it will change the way you view everything. It's exactly how Joseph can go from brothers who want to beat him up, kill him, sell him, to say, hey, you guys meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. Here, let me bless you. It changes the world. 
That's radical. That's forgiveness. That's that you don't have to blame others because you know that God is working on your behalf. When we view life this way, it gives you freedom. It gives you hope. It gives you something to hang on to. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the conviction of things hoped for. The certainty of things unseen. You don't see the way it's going to turn out. Joseph didn't have it rolled out in front of him. Hey, uh, Joseph, just hang on. You're going to get beat up and sold. Then you're going to get put in slavery. And then some more crazy things are going to happen to you. But hey, uh, I just wanted to tell you all this up front so that you wouldn't worry. No, he didn't get that. But he believed with faith. You and I, we don't get that. But we have a promise from God. Let me tell you just a couple of these promises. Just to encourage you, Philippians 1.6, here's a promise from God. We have this promise that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You're like, I don't know about that. Oh yeah, God promised it. It'll happen. You can take it to the bank. You're like, but, but my life's such a mess right now. Keep walking faithfully with God. And he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. What about this one? Maybe some of you need this. Matthew 12, 20. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Some of you are at the place where you're like, I've just got a smoldering wick. There's no fire left in me. Smoldering. You have hope. He's not going to quench that. He's not going to quench that. You're bruised, you're beat up, you're broken. You're like, God, I don't know, I don't have anything. God, how are you going to work in my life? How in the world could you use me? He's not going to break off a bruised reed until he brings justice to victory. Some of you may need this. Romans 8, 28 says, For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to the will of God. Just keep loving God. Just keep loving God. It's working for your good. Or the passage that Claude read for us will end here with this promise from God out of 1 Peter 5. It says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Remind you of Joseph? Just keep trusting God, his provisions and his promises. And at the right time he will exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because you know you're going to be anxious when your circumstances don't line up. You know you're going to be anxious. Cast those on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That there's suffering. And as Christians, we shouldn't think that we're going to escape the suffering. Jesus said to his disciples, I send you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. That doesn't go well for the sheep, right? There's suffering. Don't be shocked. Don't lose hope. God's working through. He's redeeming the evil intentions of men for your good and his glory. And after you have suffered a little while, here it is. The God of all grace 
who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God will do it. Do you believe his promise? It doesn't always change the circumstances, but it changes the way you live in the midst of those. Let's pray. God, make us like Joseph. Lord, we want to be in a place where we can walk through hills and valleys, through the valley of the shadow of death, and believe your promises and trust your promises and trust your goodness for us, that you're working, that you're able. God, that you love us despite what the circumstances scream at us. You love us. God, despite what the circumstances scream at us, you're working for our good. God, help us to believe it. Help us to have faith. Give us faith that we would believe it. That the promises of God would be more real to us than the circumstances we walk in. Lord, would you do it in us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.